This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Delta V, the new novel from New York Times bestseller Daniel Suarez. Kirkus writes that Delta V is, quote, a cut above most tech novels. Suarez's latest benefits from his attention to detail, which boosts the believability of his futuristic vision. Learn more over at daniel-suarez.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 358 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Blake J. Harris, who you may remember from our panel on the Nintendo Entertainment System back in episode 114. His best-selling book, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation, is currently being adapted into a TV series by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. And we'll be speaking with Blake today about his new book, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality, which tells the amazing rags-to-riches story of teenage inventor Palmer Luckey, who co-founded a company worth billions, only to fall victim to internet outrage and corporate backstabbing. And today's show is brought to you by Delta V, the new novel from best-selling author, technologist, and TED speaker Daniel Suarez, who has been called the legitimate heir to Michael Crichton by Publishers Weekly and the Tom Clancy of Cybersecurity by Business Week. And here's a description of the book. It says, When cave diver James Ty receives an invitation to billionaire Nathan Joyce's private island, he thinks it must be a mistake. But Ty's unique skill set makes him a prime candidate for Joyce's high-risk venture to mine a near-Earth asteroid, with the goal of kickstarting an entire off-world economy. The potential rewards and personal risks are staggering, but the competition is fierce and the stakes couldn't be higher. As the second age of exploration begins, Ty and his fellow adventurers intend to alter the trajectory of human civilization, or die trying. James Logan, former NASA Chief of Flight Medicine, writes, Thoroughly researched and brilliantly written, Daniel Suarez integrates the technology, intrigue, chaos, and human drama of the next giant leap with rare scientific and operational literacy. Haunting, bold, and inspirational, this deep space tale resonates on every level. For me, a 22-year NASA veteran in direct mission support, Delta V captures the very essence of exploration. And here's a special note from Daniel Suarez, who writes... Throughout Delta V, it's made clear that commercial expansion into space will augment rather than replace NASA, ESA, and other missions of sovereign exploration. It embraces commerce and space as a catalyst for expanding human presence in the solar system, and that presence will include national space agencies. So again, the book is Delta V by Daniel Suarez, and you can learn more over at daniel-suarez.com. And you should also check out our interview with Daniel Suarez back in episode 251 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Blake J. Harris. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, or I should say having me back uh, five years after my first book. Thanks. Thanks so much, David. Yeah, I was actually going to start out and mention that because you last appeared on the show back in episode 114, way back in August of 2014, to talk about your book, Console Wars. And you were reminding me that you actually recorded that interview while standing in the lobby outside a musical. So yes, <laughs> could you just remind me how that happened and how I agreed to that? Um, you probably agreed to it because I didn't give you a choice and probably <laughs> laid it on you at the last second, uh, which I apologize for. And I'll try to make up for it today with an especially good interview. Um, and for me, it was because I had consoles come out. I was on top of the world and I thought, sure, I can write a musical. And, and I put a lot of money into that. And that turned out to be a, an error to think that that would go well. 
But uh, I do remember a, a highlight of that difficult time being our conversation. So I'm looking forward to having another one. <laughs> Oh, that's great! Yeah, and I actually went and saw the musical. You gave me—I think you gave me free tickets or something—and it was a—it was all like video game characters, so that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was a fun musical. I mean, conceptually, I think it was good. It was called Wiki Musical, and it was about a pair of sisters who literally step into the internet. So I guess you could say that Wreck It Ralph too sort of stole my idea. <laughs> no, it was kind of out there for the taking. <laughs> Well, right. I mean, and it seems like, yeah, when I talked to you that you were just on top of the world. I mean, you were talking about having, I think, a documentary and a movie of Console Wars come out later that year, which uh, I guess there was some delays in that. Or? <laughs> oh, man, to be young again. Um, yeah, so I, I was on top of the world. I still feel very good. I'm glad that I'm, you know, writing for a living now and making documentaries instead of what I had previously been doing for nine years, which was trading commodities. But uh, certainly my timetable was a bit off. At the time we spoke, Console Wars had been optioned to be a feature film by Sony Pictures. Seth Rogen was uh, producing and potentially writing it. Um, and then I was also directing a documentary with my buddy Jonah Toulis. Uh I guess it's flash forward now five years. And, and uh, the movie is going to be a, um, a television series, which actually is very close to happening. You know, we have a pilot script and everything. So... Um, things are actually moving along in that regard. And then, uh, we've been working on the documentary as of late. So, um, I will say hopefully <laughs> both those things will be out, um, in the near future, though maybe you'll have me on I've, five I've years. I've heard from that now, one I'll, before, yeah. Yeah, and I'll look very foolish again, but <laughs> at least things are moving along now and, and, and in, in a good way. I mean, I actually heard you say that you think that the book adapts better as a TV series than as a feature film. Absolutely. I mean, the book is 550 pages. Um, I remember early on, I was um, asked if I even had an interest in potentially writing a draft of the script. So, you know, I wasn't necessarily being offered the job, but um, I didn't even have an interest because I knew that the 90 minute version of the, of the story, which would, could definitely be a, a great movie, it would just be one that condensed characters and really cut out a lot of the details. And, and knowing these people personally, <laughs> I felt like I couldn't do a very good job of that. Um, and, and, and I guess fortunately the nice thing that happened during the delay, um, over the past five years is that television, which was already pretty great, has become even more of the medium to expect, uh, you know, intricate, comprehensive storytelling. So, um, I think it, it, it's, it was a very good decision to do it as a TV series now. So do you spend a lot of time now just hobnobbing with celebrities and people in the geek world? Well, I'm talking to you. So <laughs> of course, um, yeah. No, I mean, not at all. Um, Seth, Seth is uh, one of the few celebrities that I know, and he's also probably one of the busiest celebrities. I, I kind of feel like I have been hibernating for the past five years, um, ever since not long after we spoke, just working on this most recent book, and uh, now I'm finally coming out and reemerging the world. So not much hobnobbing in my life, definitely a lot of homebodying and, and <laughs> hanging out with my cat and, and writing. I mean, because I noticed that the new book has an introduction by Ernest Klein. I was just curious if you know him at all, or was that just you just emailed him? And oh, it's a good question. Um, so, because so many of the people that I interviewed who had worked at Oculus or even at HTC um, and, and were sort of a part of this this resurrection of virtual reality, they all so many of them referenced um, Ernest Klein's book Ready Player One that I wanted to interview him. So initially, I just you know spoke to him as a pure interview. And then I asked him if he would write the uh, forward to the book. 
and he actually uh, was he declined. He said he was too busy uh, working on the screenplay for Ready Player One with Steven Spielberg, which is hard. It's a good, it's a good excuse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a good excuse. Um, and then I did something I'll have to that, use I, that one. Yes, yes, we should all use it. Um, and then I did something I rarely ever have done, which is to reapproach someone um, who had said no, because I usually try to be respectful of that. But then after um, after Palmer Lucky ended up getting fired from Oculus, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, I, I, I uh, foresaw that the book might face some marketing challenges, <laughs> and, and I knew that Ernest was a, a pretty big fan of Palmer's and felt that Palmer had been wrong, so I reapproached him, and uh, he had been, you know, he he had finished writing the screenplay, um, and and was said he was more than happy to uh, write the forward. So that was a really exciting day for me. I I don't usually uh, emote all that much, but I do remember sort of jumping up and down when when Ernie said that he would write the forward. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into all that stuff. I was also just curious. I saw that you're involved also with the How Did This Get Made podcast. Yeah, that's um, unfortunately I haven't been too active on that in the past year as I was really into the thick of the book. But uh, I plan to get back into that now, and and it was a big part of my past few years. It's also been one of the most fulfilling creative um, outlets in my life. Um, you know, for listeners who are unaware, the How Did This Get Made podcast is hosted by Paul Shear uh, with June Diane Raphael, his wife and a great comedian, and also with Jason Manzukis, who listeners might know as Rafi from the League, and. Uh, the three of them just talk about bad movies every two weeks. and But it is called How Did This Get Made? So a couple of years ago, or a few years ago now, I reached out to Paul and said that, um, you know, I thought it was one of the funniest podcasts out there, but but the show never actually answers. How did these movies get made? Hmm. Who wants to make a terrible movie um, like, like Kazam or like the Avengers movie that has nothing to do with Marvel Comics? And Paul said, you know what, you're absolutely right. Um, and so that led to me uh, sort of getting the behind-the-scenes stories on some of the worst movies ever made. And I said it's been really creatively fulfilling um, because it's so fascinating to hear about how things went wrong. And, and you know, it's usually speaking with talented, creative people who obviously are not going into this trying to make a bad product. Um, and so hearing how their vision was compromised or how their vision was maybe too ambitious or just non-commercially um, appealing has been so fascinating time after time. And then to hear it from different perspectives, from the producer, from the director, from the writer, as many people as I can get. Um, so those, those have been really fun. Um, I, I also encourage people to listen to that podcast because even though you don't get the behind the scenes story, uh, Paul and the gang are very hilarious. Did you know Paul or did you just cold email him with that idea? I cold emailed him. And I think that that, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, young writers will ask me for advice and, and that is one of the, I feel like best examples where I was purely just a fan of the show. And I thought that as, as a fan of the show, I would love to learn even more about these movies. And so I just reached out to Paul, uh, through the contact page on their website. It wasn't even like I had his email, um, and, and just made the suggestion. And I told him that, you know, I would happily volunteer to write it, but if not me, someone else should do it because I thought it was a good idea. And so I, I often think about that when people ask for advice because a lot of times I think the best move is to just figure out a way to be helpful to a, a, a product or show or whatever that you like. Um, and that's a way to sort of start working with someone else. You know, people have reached out to me and offered to help me with certain things and, and I appreciate it. So, um, 
that that's always a good way to get your foot in the door. So if someone, if listeners want to go check that out, check out your interviews, is there a certain one that you think would make a good introduction? Um, yeah, absolutely. So the, the best one, which is probably my favorite interview I've ever done, was with Mel Brooks. And, and I spoke for like 5% of the whole conversation. So it's just him telling me um, the story of him producing Solar Babies, which is perhaps not a movie that you'd heard of. I had not heard of it. Um, and, you know, my conversation with Mel started off and he said, he's like, Blake, this is great. I get to tell you the greatest film story there ever was. And, you know, I thought, Mel was just being a little bit hyperbolic because he's a great storyteller. And then he really did tell me one of the greatest film stories I've ever heard about how he, um, you know, almost considered taking his life and how he was just in such a bad situation and how that ended up really changing the trajectory of his career to do such a, a terrible movie in Solar Babies. And, you know, the, the, the interview was up on Slash Film and you could find all of them on my website at Blake J. Harris. Uh, there's like a section there and just all the interviews, but, I, I highly encourage people to read that one if you're a fan of Mel Brooks or a fan of learning from mistakes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll have, to, I'll have to go check that out because I am not, in fact, familiar with Solar Babies. So it'll be a <laughs> well. And, and like, the funny thing too is, uh, uh, you know, obviously Mel went on to do dozens of other great things, and one of the most notable is the the Broadway show, The Producers. And there's that line in there, um, you know, like rule number one of Broadway. Never put your own money in. Rule number two, never put your own money in. And that was inspired by <laughs> him putting his own money into Solar Babies and realizing what a terrible uh, hubristic mistake that was. <laughs> All right. So we mentioned that you you came off console wars. You were just on top of the world. And so you, then you're going to write your next book. And this next book turned out to be a lot more of an ordeal, I gather, than, than console yes. wars. So how did you get yourself into this, uh, this whole thing? <laughs> um, it was an ordeal that I'm glad I went through, um, but we'll get into that in a moment. So, so coming off of console wars, I did not know what I wanted to write next for, for a time period. I was interested in writing about electronic arts. I was also looking into writing about Rovio, the company that makes Angry Birds, um, because I thought that would be, uh, well, Angry Birds is an incredibly successful game, but also I thought that would be an interesting way to look at mobile gaming. And then, um, the way that Oculus really came onto my radar was that, you know, I had mentioned earlier that prior to all of this to becoming a, a full-time writer, I had uh, been trading commodities. I had been, uh, you know, working at a financial brokerage. So when Council Wars came out, it was a really big deal for me. Uh, definitely life-changing. It was the first time that people actually wanted to interview me. And, and one of the first big interviews to come out was... Uh, in the print edition of Popular Mechanics, and it came out on Mother's Day in 2014. And so I was out at brunch with my mom and my family, and I left the meal in the middle of brunch to go get a copy from a local bodega. And this was going to be a very big deal. My mom was very proud. Uh, but along the way back to brunch, I was much more interested in what was on the cover than in showing my mom the story about me. And it was a cover story about a kid named Palmer Lucky, who was then... I guess he was uh, 21 years old and about how he had founded Oculus and they had sold the Facebook for a few billion dollars. And, you know, up until that point, I'd heard of Oculus, but I didn't realize there was um, an interesting human story behind it. And I didn't really realize exactly um, all that they had accomplished in such a short time. So that was really my um, first, the first time that I wanted to write a book, like when I ended up writing. Um, and then for me, access is always such an important part of it because I really want you to feel like you 
know these characters and are there with these characters. So from that point, which I guess was, you know, May 2014, it ended up taking me until February of 2016. So almost two years to get the access that I wanted. Um, but I did. And then in February of 2016, uh, a month before Oculus launched their first consumer product, the Oculus Rift, the CV1, the consumer version, I was given this incredible access by Facebook and by Oculus. And, uh, and then the next, you know, the rest of the year, the rest of 2016 went absolutely, uh, not how myself or how they had anticipated at first. Oculus had a lot of launch issues, uh, when they launched in March. There were shipping delays. There was a lot of, um, angry customers who I would, I, I could understand why they were angry. Oculus handled it very poorly. And they also just did a very poor job of messaging and explaining to people what was happening. And then, um, then I guess what was six months after that, uh, Palmer Lucky became the most hated man in Silicon Valley, uh, largely based on two things. One being his support for Donald Trump, which is true. And then the other being, um, how that was reported, which was not, not totally accurate, um, involving, um, allegations that he was running some sort of troll factory or meme factory. Um, and then six months after that, Palmer was fired from Oculus. So it's a very different experience reporting the story. Just, uh, can, you know, very obviously because this story was happening while I was writing it, whereas console wars has all happened in the past. And then two, for the reasons I mentioned, the story uh, definitely went in directions I did not expect, <laughs> which is why, I, you know, ordeal is a fair word and probably one that I've used myself. But it's also, like I said, like, like, I don't regret it. It was really, it was a good challenge. I'm glad that I was there while this was happening to get the stuff while it was happening so that it was recorded uh, for historical purposes. But it was certainly uh, a much different and difficult book to record than Console Wars. Right. And just to give you an idea. So before I read your book, everything I knew about Palmer Lucky is I had seen him on the cover of Time Magazine where he's kind of like floating in the air with the VR... <laughs> goggles on his face i didn't I think that you are uh, contractually required to say that he was uh foolishly floating in the air or <laughs> or, or stupid looking way floating in the air but yes yeah and then i uh, then i had seen you know whatever article you know had said that he was uh finance that he was this billionaire who was financing like you know just tons and tons of toxic memes yeah and I had maybe seen the headline and maybe read like the first two paragraphs of an article and just sort of thought to myself, oh, I guess he's an awful person and then went on to the next article or whatever right. and didn't really give it any thought beyond that. Um, but so for people who had that level of familiarity with Palmer Lucky, let's just just tell a bit about his story. So he's uh, you, you said he's very I think he was 19 or something. He's living in a trailer in his parents driveway. He has three hundred dollars in his bank account. And is self-educated. I guess he had been maybe taken some community college classes or something, but is almost entirely self-educated. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was homeschooled during his, you know, high school formative years. I, I, the wording is kind of tough because to your point, he started taking community college classes when he was 16. So he was kind of going to college. Uh, but yeah, he's a real independent learner and independent thinker. He was living in this trailer. Um, his parents at the beginning of the story, you know, which starts in April of 2012, that he was actually kind of getting kicked out of that trailer, which was in his parents' driveway and, uh, needing to find a place to live. So things were not going great for him. Um, but what was going great was his, uh, prototyping of virtual reality headsets. Uh, he started Oculus in June of 2012. Um, I was able to get some 
great text messages between him and his friend who ended up becoming the first employee where Palmer basically says, you know, he's going to take a year off of college and give Oculus a try. You know, worst case, he'll have had a fun year and we'll see how it goes. And obviously it went a lot better than that. Um, <laughs> and so he ended up uh, partnering in, in June and July of 2012 with a, a guy named Brendan Arib, who would become the CEO of Oculus and who um, put, you know, put some early money into Oculus. And, and in Palmer's words, you know, uh, Palmer told me a few weeks before he was fired from Facebook, uh, sort of reflecting on, on everything. He said that Oculus never would have happened without me. Um, but it never, you know, but it never would have succeeded without Brendan. So Brendan was a huge part of Oculus's success. And then they sold the Facebook less than two years later for nearly $3 million, which made it the fastest multi-billion dollar exit for a startup ever. And then, um, you know, they were working on building this headset. Palmer, to your point about being on the cover of Time magazine and what I said earlier about popular mechanics, you know, Palmer was the face of Oculus. He was the face of this industry. He was sort of like the chosen one, the, the, the hope for this resurrection of virtual reality, which made it especially, um, halting and jarring when reports came out in September of 2016. This was about, you know, six weeks before the presidential election. Um, you know, in the first one, the one that quote unquote broke the story was the Daily Beast, um, which alleged that uh you know the headline was Facebook billionaire secretly funding Trump's meme machine. And then from there, in the next few hours online and through other articles, um, you know, basically it was made uh clear or described that, you know, every terrible white supremacist, misogynistic, transphobic, awful, anti Semitic meme that you'd seen online during the election season Palmer was responsible for and had been funding this group of trolls. Um, that part of the story was was not true at all. Uh, what was true was that he had funded up, you know, he had given about $10,000 to a uh, small Trump organization called Nimble America that was founded by two moderators of the Donald subreddit. And, uh, you know, the Donald subreddit is not a place that I like to or have spent much time, so I understand why people don't like that, but uh, I would encourage them to read or better understand the, the specific founders. But regardless, um, those founders started this organization with the goal of putting up, uh, you know, meme-like, catchy billboards across the country in battleground states, and uh, they put up one billboard in Pennsylvania that had, uh, you know, the words too big to jail on it, and then a character of Hillary Clinton's face. Um, so, you know, I don't think there was anything, uh, unreasonable there. It seemed like a pretty typical sort of campaign advertisement. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I just remember reading those articles at the time it came out, um, and just being very surprised because I think that that, that was pretty, it would be, have, would have been pretty crazy if Palmer was funding a group of, uh, terrible, uh, toxic meme makers. And, and all these articles said that he was, but none of them actually showed these terrible memes. And I just remember being kind of confused because uh, it was a big allegation and there was no evidence of it. Um, and then I ended up speaking with all the people involved and, and making sure to get the full story, which was different than what had been reported. And, uh, you know, it's been an interesting process over the past couple of years to try to set the record straight on that because it's been very hard uh, a lot of people, a lot of journalists I speak to don't really seem to care. And then a big part of the problem, too, is that the original um, authors of the Daily Beast article, which broke the story, have been unwilling to speak with me and unwilling to change their story. 
And so all the people who linked back to their story just say, yeah, okay, you might have spent two years researching this, but we're looking back to the story, and those people haven't changed it, so sorry, we're not going to change it. So it's been an interesting process. Well, right, and after reading your book, I feel kind of foolish that I didn't doubt the the sort of um, dominant narrative at all, because I've seen this so much, even with just stuff that I've, um, you know, that I've written for Wired.com, you know, that somebody will write an article about it, which is mostly made up. Um, but then somebody else will basically copy and pa- copy and paste that article, you know, using the most suspicious, paranoid interpretation of every sentence right, and then right. taking things that aren't quotes and putting them in quotes. And then someone <laughs> will come along and do the same thing to that article. And it just goes on and on in this demented telephone game. You're just very quickly into just complete absurdity. No, the telephone game is really the best way to describe it. You know, I... By design, I, I did not write anything about the work that I was doing for the past few years, um, especially because I didn't want Facebook to know like what direction I was headed with certain things. But the only thing I did publish was an article on Upload VR, and also it was published on VentureBeat that 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 didn't have any of the research or you know information I had uncovered, but was just purely publicly available information. It was just all the headlines and, and many of the social media, uh, many of the tweets with regards to what happened. And you just see how this inaccurate article um, over the course of 24 hours just evolves into something that is so, like, ridiculous. You know, like, the, the Daily Beast article is wrong, but at least I could see it's just very bad interpretations of, of, of things that, you know, you can kind of understand how if they were, you know, looking at this in the least charitable way, they could maybe say some of those things. But then you get to... Uh, 24 hours later, and it's just the most ludicrous thing. And then you also have this feedback loop with social media where people are saying all these terrible things, people who have no more information about what happened than what they're reading. And then you also have um, the articles that are happening later. Their defense sometimes is not that they're reporting it. It's that they're reporting that people are talking about this or that the people are saying this. And then it's like, yeah, but people are saying that because they're reading articles like yours. Hmm. Um, so it's this really weird feedback loop and and then that kind of uh you know all in all it gets to why i find this so um interesting and important you know i've had people say to me after reading this book like like wow like you really think i'm supposed to feel bad for palmer he's a he's a rich guy who's now going on to start another company and my goal with this book is certainly not to make you feel bad for palmer or to garner sympathy for palmer i just think palmer is an excellent proxy for this thing that happens all the time i mean it's happening it's happened to you um it's happened to me with certain things that i've said and written and then you could just sort of extrapolate to think like the higher the profile you are the more you know it's stuff's getting covered the more that this is happening and so um I, 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 I always try to make clear, um, mostly just because I find Trump so repugnant to say that, you know, my politics are very different than Palmer. Um, I really, really don't like, um, President Trump and didn't like candidate Trump. Um, I was really, really devastated when Hillary Clinton lost. Um, so my, my, my you know, my objective here was not to provide a, a partisan defense of Palmer. It was really just to show this thing that happens more and more in social media. And also to show that, you know, when President Trump says this stupid stuff about the media and the being the enemy of the state and all that, um, I think that's dangerous and I think that's wrong. But he talks about fake news. And I think sometimes people on my side of the aisle dismiss it. 
Um, but there, but, but there's a lot of truth to what he says. I, I think like most things, the way he says it is, is really, uh, self-serving and unhelpful. But, but like, you know, the Palmer situation is a perfect example of fake news, um, where someone like you who's educated, familiar with the tech scene, um, that, that you leave with this impression. And, and I would also really want to mention something that, that Palmer once said to me when I compiled that list of, of tweets and headlines. I shared it with him. Um, or maybe he read the article after it was published and then I asked him what he thought and he said that it was interesting. He said, you know, the thing, he said, like, the obvious reaction is, wow, all these people are being so mean to me. He said, but I don't really feel that way, um, about the people on Twitter. He said, he said, they're just misled. It's not really their fault that they're reading these articles and they're just believing they're true. And why wouldn't they? You know, it's, it's articles by reputable publications. So, his his concern was really with the media, not with the people who were reacting. So that's a long-winded way of saying that um, I don't think he would have any ill will towards you for, for leaving after reading a headline in two paragraphs thinking that this was true because it's not your job to look into this. And that's where it became really sad and really scary to me that people whose job it was were putting out inaccurate information. Um, but, but, you know, that happens sometimes as journalists. The part that I found really scary was when I approached these people afterwards and said, hey, I've actually looked into this. I have no skin in the game here. Here's what I found. And they still didn't really care. And I, I really have trouble wrapping my head around that because that's like our job is to try to get things right. And we don't always get it right, but we should try to correct it when we don't. Yeah, it's it's really complicated because, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people in this book come off looking terrible, you know, journalists, <laughs> uh, Facebook executives, Oculus executives. Um, but I, I was just thinking about this. I mean, I'm talking to you. I read your book. I'm disseminating your message. I haven't checked, like, you know, that everything in your book is correct. I don't have the resources or the time right. to do that. Like, so, you know, what what are people supposed to do? Like, like what level of... Um, uh, due diligence is just like a normal person on Twitter or even like a journalist who's probably being paid almost nothing to write this particular article. Like how much, how much time are they supposed to spend checking, um, you know, facts before they share them? I mean, I think it's very different between a journalist and, and a reader or, you know, obviously you're a journalist, I'm a journalist, but I think in terms of like the areas we cover, it's very different us as readers versus us as journalists, um, you know, basically if we were going to put out an article. Um, I don't think that the average person should have to do much due diligence. I would hope that there would just be a small amount of healthy skepticism, like when I read the first Palmer articles myself, not knowing what was true and what was not, to just ask, like, okay, where are the memes? You know, if, if this, this is a big allegation, at least just, you know, it should be very easy to show the evidence of, of this terrible thing that he's doing. Um and then with journalists, um, I mean, to some degree, I also, um, I understand the business model, but I don't really understand <laughs> how people live with themselves, just regardless of whether it's accurate or not. Like, like the big takeaway for me from this list of all these articles in this game of telephone is, um, you know, for me, I think, yes, like the obvious takeaway is look how wrong the story was and how wrong it got. But the other takeaway is, wow, there's 50 articles and no one here except for the first person has done any research. Everyone's just copying and pasting parts of the other article. Like, why do these articles exist? And like I said, I understand for business model purposes that, you know, 
uh, every website needs their version of the story, but <laughs> the idealist in me would hope that they would just say, hey, there's this article on the Daily Beast, check that out. So at least we could focus on one thing. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I do know, I guess, um, like, you know, it's, it's sometimes frustrating to hear people highlight a problem and then not offer solutions of their own. But I would say that this book is my attempt at a solution and not just to say, hey, guys, the media was wrong about this, but you should trust me because that then you would just be doing the same thing, though I would hope that you know, the length of the book and the years of research would maybe give, you know, tilt in my favor a bit. But, but also, um, I, unlike console wars, I really tried to take myself out of the story as much as possible and let the book live on the words of the people in the story. And what I mean is that there's a lot of emails, there's a lot of text messages. Um, and I tried to use that instead of my interpretation of things. So that way, um, people could read the internal reactions to what was happening with Palmer straight from people at Facebook or from people in the book so that it's not just me describing it because maybe I am taking some sort of subjective view of what's happened to try to suit my narrative. I, I don't think that's the case, but but in fairness, I want readers to be able to draw their own conclusions. So as much as possible, I've just tried to use um, archival information. Um, and so watching what happened to Palmer did, in a sense, change how I reported on the book because I didn't want to make the same mistakes. And, and getting back to your question, I didn't. I wanted to give readers reason to believe me here and also to draw their own conclusions. And, and in, to that extent, I'll say that some of my favorite reactions that I've gotten to the book are, uh, are from people. <laughs> One in particular I recently got over a Twitter DM was someone saying, you know, wow, I just read 500 pages and I still don't know whether I like Palmer or not. And that's good because I'm not trying to sell you on liking Palmer or not. I just want to try to sell you on what, what actually happened. Um, and to your point, um, you know, a lot of people come off looking bad or naive or, um, lacking open-mindedness. So, yeah. And so I, I, I think that that's, um, I, I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out that people are, you know, not feeling like this is some, um, you know, where, whereas Console Wars very much was um, like a, a celebratory story of Tom Kalinske and, and people at Sega as well as people at Nintendo. This was a different kind of book and one that um, I was able to execute this way because there's such a strong paper trail um, in this era of emails and messages. <laughs> Well, right. I, one thing that struck me is that, I mean, there's not, a, there's almost no editorializing in the book. It's just laying out the facts with a lot of documentation. And that article you mentioned was similar. And you said that, you know, it's basically just like, here's what people tweeted. This is all publicly available. Uh, I don't think there's any editorializing in that article. And then people are saying, like, not only is Palmer lucky an awful person, you're an awful person. And, and you're like, all I did was post a bunch of, you know, a documentary evidence of, of right. tweets. And I also, that article I posted, I tried to um, open it up. I said, you know, as journalists, we often make mistakes. So I, I didn't want the article to come across as like, hey, journalists, you messed up. You're bad people. I, I tried to explain, like, this does happen. Um, and, and uh, yeah, like, I was, I was a little surprised at the reaction that people were really mad at me and called me the same things they had called Palmer, white supremacist, Nazi, um, which... I obviously am not. Um, I, I don't even like 
uh, but but at the same time, it's also really symptomatic of how how these kinds of things happen, where it's um, a very subjective reading of the details, and and it's a lot of guilt by association. Um, so I I guess uh, that did prepare me to some degree uh, for the launch of the book and and what I expected. Um, though perhaps it, it prepared me poorly. I, I expected that when the book came out, um, it would be a lot of the reaction that I got to that article, which I would, you know, just roughly say it was like 50% of people said like, oh, um, this is great, either because they love Palmer themselves or because they appreciated me trying to provide an objective um, look at what actually happened. Uh, and then 50% of people calling me a white supremacist and telling me I was awful or, you know, uh, that they didn't want to be sympathetic to Palmer. Um, I, whatever the case, I expected that with this book, but what ended up happening, at least thus far, was that it's been, um, I would say like almost like 99% positive, and then, um, instead of that, that name calling, um, there's just been silence, particularly from most of the media outlets that really seem to enjoy my first book and, um, just have not covered the book at all. Well, I mean, it seems to me that there's just this dynamic where, you know, people feel that Trump is so bad. And I mean, I, I basically agree with that, but that Trump is so bad that anything is justified in opposing him. Correct. And it's not really necessary to be scrupulous with the truth because this is war. You know, it's like total war. Right. And I just feel like this is so short sighted because, you know, if you are saying things that are demonstrably false, then that just gives ammunition to Trump's supporters to, to write off the media establishment as a whole. And now there's no way to reach them, any of them ever, you know. I'm really glad you said that. You're the first person to make that point. And I think that that really um, cuts to the core of, like, why I think this is important. Um, you know, I think the most dangerous thing with Trump is that he's not totally wrong. I'd say he's, like, 85% wrong. But when he says the media is being unfair to him, this is exactly the kind of stuff that he's talking about. I guess in this case, a Trump supporter. Um and and then you get into a situation where people are unwilling to trust the media completely, um, and and so that that is really my concern. We have to, but, but I guess okay. I mean, um, so like you, I agree that Trump is is uniquely uh, terrible, or I, I uniquely I like I dislike him more than any politician that has ever had held office in our lifetime. But then you have to really consider two things. One is that. Um, almost half the country voted for him and still supports him. So um, how do you reconcile the fact that um, your opinion is not shared by half the people? And maybe they don't like some of the things you don't like about him, but they're willing to look past that. And then the other thing, too, and, and this is not a, you know original idea on my part, but it, you sort of look at what set the stage for Trump and... You know, I think that you and I probably feel pretty confident that Trump is a racist and that he is a bully and, and a lot of other um, negative things. But then you look at what's at the stage, and to some degree, it was calling Romney or George W. Bush these same things. And then when we when the media said these things again with Trump, people thought, oh, well, they said that about Romney, and we know that that's not true, or that it was to an acceptable degree or whatever. Um, and so that's where I feel like like what you were saying and what I think is so important is how short-sighted it is. Um, you know, like, like you got to think about the, the consequences of reporting things this way. And, and um, you know, at the end of the day, I have to believe that the accuracy and truth 
still matters. Um, and so I hope that this book can help people see that a little bit because I do think it's really important um, to report fairly, even on people with different um, ideologies than you, and even if they are supporting a politician that you find uh, repugnant. Right, and there's just a lot of sort of the boy who cried wolf dynamics at play. And I mean, even like I'm very close to just completely tuning out any like 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 how many times can you go through this sort of thing with somebody like Palmer Lucky, where the accusations turn out to be at minimum wildly exaggerated? Um, Before it's just like it's just not like if I hear an accusation against someone, it's just not worth my time to. Uh, even consider it because like after several dozen iterations of this, I'm just sort of burned out on even caring. Right. And that's really, and I think that that gets to, uh, a, you know, a similar place in the mindset of the, of the Trump voter. Like you said, it's a boy who cried wolf thing where, um, you know, aside from the access Hollywood video, which is so explicit and assuming that you don't believe that that video was doctored, like so, so many of the other claims, people just say, Oh, I've seen the media misreport on this before. I'm just fatigued by this. And that's really terrible. Um, because if the, if the allegations against Palmer were true and a similar thing happened now or even back then, like that should, that you should want to know that that's really terrible and that he would be in a leadership position at a company that is trying to literally, you know, alter your reality. Um, but I think that, um, we see this, I think something else that's happening is that, um, this, this could also just be my own, like, biased sample size of one, but, but Palmer isn't the only person I know who has sort of gone through this sort of experience of, of, of allegations that turned out to not be fully accurate. Um, and so I think it's, it does seem to be when I talk to people, it's happening to someone they know or to, you know, a celebrity that they closely follow who they believe or who they actually go out of their way to look into the evidence. And so as it happens to more and more people, I think more people are starting to realize, like, we need to be skeptical of what we're reading. And I get though that is a positive sign, though it's also a really sad commentary on the state of, of journalism in this time. Well, let's talk about Facebook. So my understanding is that Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress and Ted Cruz asked him, was Palmer Lucky fired? over his political views, and Mark Zuckerberg says no. Correct. H- has Ted Cruz read your book? Do you know? I don't know if he's read the book yet. I've been in touch with someone from his office and trying to make sure that that happens. Um, but I think that he should, because I think that um, Mark was either outright lying or he was really playing some sort of semantic gymnastics to figure out a way that he felt that, that could be true. Um, and, you know, like, I think, I think th- this is a, uh, the book lays out what seems like a very um, obvious, in my opinion, or at least I would say a reasonable case for political discrimination. And the thing that I always try to look at with discrimination of any kind, whether um, it's against, um, you know, a woman, an African-American, Muslim, Anything, you know, you, I try to, one of the first things I try to imagine is, okay, if, what if it was a different person in their position? Would they have been treated differently? And, um, I think that Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, um, could not play any sort of mental gymnastics to get around the fact that if Palmer had been a supporter of Hillary Clinton or even Bernie Sanders, 
um, he would still have his job. There's no doubt in my mind that that's true. Um, and I think that there's no doubt in Mark's mind that that's true. So um, I hope that, that Senator Cruz or someone else really comes back to Mark and, and checks in about that. Um, I, I, I will say that I don't think Mark was under oath. Um, so, so legally, I don't know what the implications are. I think morally, though, he has responsibility to answer accurately. Um, and the other thing that we should probably mention, which is one of the biggest reveals in the book, is that um, during the aftermath of, of the allegations against Palmer, Palmer uh, wrote a public statement that um, initially explained, uh, you know, what was true and what was not, and really explained a lot of what the Daily Beast got wrong. Um, and then in that statement, he also said that he was a Trump supporter um, and that that part was true. That was not allowed to be posted um, due to concerns from the Facebook um, executives that, you know, they, they didn't want a fellow executive saying that he was a Trump supporter. And I found that a little hard to believe that Facebook would really care that much about preventing someone from supporting one of the two major candidates. Uh, and then I realized I later realized I was wrong because. Um, not only did they care so much, but Mark Zuckerberg personally drafted the statement that Palmer had to post. And that statement said that Palmer would be voting for Gary Johnson instead of Trump. Um, and, and so Palmer did post that statement, uh, and doing that sort of thing is illegal in California. Um, and so I always think that that, I, I just really have trouble wrapping my head around that, that Mark actually drafted this statement, um, and has faced no consequences for that. And, and in particular, you know, over the past year, there's been a lot of um, reporting on, on what, what really goes on at Facebook and some of the scandals there, uh, which is great because I think that these are really important things that should be concerning to all of us with the degree of power and degree of our data that they have. But one thing I notice is that in almost all these scandals, whether it's Cambridge Analytica, whether it's, you know, 200,000 passwords being out in the open unencrypted, uh, you know, Mark is not at the center of this. Mark can always say, oh, I didn't know about that or we're going to fix that. But the situation with Palmer and coercing him to say that he was voting for Gary Johnson, you know, that is one time where Mark is right there at the scene of the crime and he is literally the one who wrote it. So that sort of blows my mind that Mark would go, would feel that it's so important to not be uh, vocally a Trump supporter that he would write a statement himself. Now, you mentioned, you say this is illegal. Has Palmer sued over this? Um, he has not. Uh, my, so I, I should say that um, I, I've spoken with Palmer almost every day for the past three years. Um, so I, I have a pretty uh, close relationship with him. You know, I, I, but, but at the same time, there's very obviously things that he can't talk to me about or, or what I mean, he chooses not to talk to me about, but I have to assume that he can't. And I have to assume that that's because of, you know, legal documents that he signed with Facebook. So there was even a lot about this whole situation. Um, like, you know, like, like he's, he's never told me that Mark drafted the statement because I assume he can't. Um, and, and then just to, uh, so anyway, the short answer is no, he hasn't taken any legal action. I assume that that's because of, um, you know, whatever NDAs he signed when he left. Uh, but the other interesting thing too is that, uh, I mentioned earlier that it took me like almost two years to get the access I wanted. And then what I did get starting in February 2016 was um, essentially like unlimited access to speak with employees at Oculus and Facebook and, um, you know, like internal support from Facebook when those employees would say like, hey, am I allowed to talk to this guy? Yes, you are. 
Um, so I had a lot of close relationships with many other people than Palmer Lucky. And, and what happened was, um, for two years, this, you know, like the relationship was pretty strong. Um, even after Palmer was fired, I still had pretty solid relationships with Facebook comms and with people there. Um, but then it became clear that in order for me to complete this book, I needed to provide, um, an account of what actually happened and what, and what led to the, um, firing of one of the main, if not the main character of the book, the guy who started the company. And, um, in response to that, over the next few months, um, I was given accounts by high-level Facebook executives that turned out to not be true, um, you know, going so far. Uh, like, again, I, I still, I love, like, your skepticism. You guys, like, how, like, why should people trust me now? Well, the kinds of stuff I was being told was that Palmer chose to leave the company. So, like, that alone is just ridiculous. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I even remember one of these conversations where a high-level exec told me, you know, oh yeah, Palmer wanted to leave. It was his choice. And I said, but, but he left. His last day was March 30th, 2017. And like just over, or four months earlier on December 4th, 2016, he was finally allowed to communicate with his colleagues for the first time since this incident. And one of the first things he said was that he planned to be at Oculus for the next 50 years. So is it your, like, is the case you're trying to make that somehow over those four months he decided he didn't want to be there anymore? And then they would always be met with like, oh, well, uh, l- let me look into that and, and I'll get back to you later. Um, and so uh, fa- Facebook was was lying to me um, consistently and and in unison. Um, you know, I was hearing the same lies from uh, various high level people, which I came to believe was their attempt to launder misinformation through my writing style. Because, you know, as you know, from reading my two books, um I don't usually attribute the information to a specific source. Um, I'll, I'll write it there if I'm able to confirm it from, um, you know, at least two people. So in this case, I was being told the same lies by multiple people. So I was getting, you know, a story and getting conf- multiple confirmations. Um, and because of that, um, I ended up, I was very fortunately, a, a bunch of folks at Facebook from both sides of the political aisle were so... I guess one of them, they were so offended by what Facebook was doing to try to lie to me um, for, for the book that they really stepped up and got me the documents I needed to present um, an accurate account of what happened. Um, that, that too, was the other thing that I found very interesting that I haven't really seen reported all that much in the sense that, um, you know, Facebook lied to me, a journalist. I think that's really problematic, but, you know, I, th- I think I, to me, there's a big difference between spin and lie. Spin is when you take the most charitable or self-serving interpretation of a factual event, and lying is when you say something like Palmer chose to leave when that's fact. You know, you can there's plenty of evidence to prove that's not true. Um, you know, so I was surprised that they would lie to a journalist. Um, I was all I was less surprised that Facebook would uh, lie or be vague to the public. Like when Palmer left, they said he exited, and they they made some public statements that that I would classify more as spin than lie. But the part that really struck me and that I haven't seen really reported because it's not just with this Palmer situation that this happens is Facebook just in lying internally. Um, you know, a lot of the reason that that people at Facebook were willing to help me were willing to risk their jobs to get me the documents that I needed is because they came to no longer trust their own employer. Um, for example, um, between, uh, between September 22nd, when the articles about Palmer came out, 
and that December 4th date that I mentioned where Palmer said he was going to be there for the next 50 years, uh, Palmer was not allowed to communicate with any of his colleagues. Um, and he, and, and the employees at Facebook or the employees at Oculus mostly, but also at Facebook were told that Palmer, um, had like continually been making requests for vacation as if it was his choice to not be there because he didn't want to face the situation. Um, and like the, to me, the most damning incident, which is not even, um, like it's not even in this edition of the book. I'm going to make sure to update it. You know, I should also say that because this is a current event, you know, some, some of this information is still coming into me, but, but the event that I just imagined it would be like in a movie trailer was, uh, I think it was October 14th or sometime in middle October, uh, one month after all this happened, Palmer at this point believed that he was about to be let back into the office. He was in a car with his friend and Oculus, an early Oculus employee named Julian Hammerstein, and they were listening to a town hall while they were driving somewhere. And um, during this town hall, uh, an Oculus employee asked what was going on with the Palmer situation. When was he coming back to the office to finally, uh, you know, actually answer questions for people? And, uh, and, they, and they were told, and Palmer and Julian heard this during the town hall um, as they were listening in, that Palmer had requested another four to six weeks of vacation. And Palmer was just so furious. Um, you know, Julian described Palmer just being apoplectic. Um, and then, um, I, I then Palmer messaged Nate Mitchell, who was a co-founder and the head of product at Facebook, and said, like, what's this about me take, asking for four to six weeks of vacation? <laughs> Another four to six weeks of vacation. And Nate said, like, oh, you heard that. I'm sorry. Let, let's talk. Um, and so just a lot of stuff like that. Um, and, and I would say that I, I would hope that most uh, listeners would agree that that's um, not a really good way of treating people and of treating your employees. Um, but, but what makes it especially sad to me is that Facebook is a company whose explicit ethos is about openness and transparency. You know, if this happened at any company, I think it would be problematic. But for it to happen at Facebook, where they pride themselves on transparency and openness and Mark, you know, participates in these town halls every Friday um, and, and creates this, um, dynamic where people believe that their CEOs, you know, willing to answer questions. Um, it's just really sad that this would happen and that <laughs> the messages I'm getting from so many Oculus employees over the past couple months is, is among other things like, wow, thank you so much for finally telling us what happened with Palmer. We've been dying to know for two years and no one's ever told us anything. One thing that strikes me is, is that given the explosive nature of a lot of the material in this book, the packaging for it seems fairly innocuous, right? It's called The History of the Future, um, Oculus, Facebook, and the how it reforms virtual reality, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Oculus, was, Facebook, and the revolution that's what virtual reality, yeah. Was, was there any conversation about making the controversies more visible in the packaging of the book? Um, that's a good question. Um, like, I mean, literally, um, in terms of like the aesthetic for the book cover and stuff like that, it was probably too late in the game to change things based on how publishers operate. Um, from my perspective, um, you know, I, I'll say that overall, I had a really great relationship with HarperCollins, the publisher. They published Console Wars. They, in my opinion, took a risk on me when I had no career whatsoever to speak of. Um, but you know, every relationship with a publisher, as I'm sure you've dealt with too, it's, you know, it's like a give and take and you pick your battles. And for me, the two biggest battles I picked, the most important was the length of the book and, you know, making sure that I was able to get everything in from the early days where it was a scrappy business startup story to 
the later days where it was really um, an unvarnished look at Facebook and some of their uh, questionable practices. Uh, and then the other big battle for me, too, was the subtitle. Um, as people might have noticed on the Amazon page, um, you know, where you go to buy the book, the URL of the book is actually um, something like History of the Future, uh, like the Misfits Makers and something, something, something else. Um, and that was the subtitle for a while. And I and I wanted to make sure that the words Oculus and Facebook were a part of it. So um, that was sort of like my attempt in a way to even get at what you're talking about of, you know, making sure that the, there was visibility behind the scenes on, on these two companies um, in terms of going beyond that with like the marketing or the presentation of the book. Um, I did, I did have a different original prologue to the book that had nothing to do with Facebook. And I ended up changing that and thought it was important um, to open with the day that Mark came to Oculus in March of 2014, the day that um, Facebook had announced that they would be acquiring Oculus for nearly $3 billion and having him talking to the team in particular, because one of the questions that someone asked was uh, related to Facebook's perception of being evil. Um, and so that was, you know, a change that I made, but, but overall, I think I'd be curious to hear if you have any ideas, but I would also just say it's kind of, it, it kind of was a bit and still is a bit of, of a packaging marketing challenge. Um, you know, like the book that I set out to write is not what actually happened. And I consider that a good thing because, you know, I followed the story where it led me, even though it led me to some places that I never would have wanted to write about. Um, but do you, do you have any ideas for how things could have been handled differently or even now how I should talk about the book? Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not um, into marketing, but I mean, it made me wonder if the, you know, like how the book would be received or whatever if, the, if it was like, it's complicated, colon, Palmer Lucky, corrupt journalists, and Facebook's web of lies or something like that, right. which would be a perfectly accurate, uh, you know, title for the book. No, I, I mean, I kind of agree. But I also think that, um, like, like the, there's something, we talked about it easily earlier, but there's, there's something weird going on here where, you know, the second line in your hypothetical subtitle is corrupt journalists. And the fact that I did write a book five years ago that garnered a lot of attention and appreciation and coverage, and that I've now written a book that I think is much more important and timely and much even better research and recorded and it's gotten zero coverage like i I, it's it's hard for me not to ask why not um there are a lot of things in this book beyond even just parmal stuff you know the way that mark zuckerberg um makes a deal with microsoft how easily that deal happens and um just there's a lot of stuff in here that seems newsworthy to me that hasn't become news because no one is reporting on it so i don't know how to get it to uh, some of those gatekeepers to inspire them to report on it. But I guess calling out the the corrupt journalist aspect, I don't think is probably wouldn't help, even though (laughs) it feels fully accurate and largely what the book comes about. Um, The book was canceled at one point. Is that right? Yeah, the book was canceled at one point. Um, (laughs) The, I was recently talking to the editor who canceled it. Um, she was congratulating me on the success of the book as it uh, rose up to number two um, last week on Amazon. Of you know that was really surreal for me to see it be the second most sold book in all of Amazon. Um, and she said 
she reminded me, or thought, she said that, you know, she fought so hard to avoid the book from being canceled, and I said that's not how I remembered it, and I pulled up an email from December 17th of 2017, um, when she literally canceled the book, um, and this was, um, you know, th this was, I, I should also say, I turned in the book very late. My, the book was originally due to Harper Collins. The manuscript was due September 26th, 2016, which was four days after the stuff that happened with Palmer. And my thought was, wow, this totally changed the book. I'm going to need a lot more time to work on this. Um, but I also want to make it clear that, uh, you know, I was, um, like, legally in breach of the contract and also just, um, you know, I understandably had frustrated them by not turning it in. Um, all of that said, I think that it wasn't because I was just, you know, chilling out and, and taking my time. There was just a lot more to research. But anyway, um, the book was canceled. Um, I can't say it was totally shocking because this came after I had turned it in, after I hadn't turned it in for a while. And also after a conversation I had had with that editor, um, not too long earlier where she, um, had told me that um, she said that there was a problem with the book. Uh, or she, she said, who's the hero of this story? You know, she reminded me that early on, we both agreed that um, there should be, you know, heroes, uh, books need heroes, or at least people who think that they're heroes. And I said that the hero was Palmer Lucky and Oculus. And she said, but it can't be Palmer. He's a Trump supporter. And I just remember being really struck by that comment because... Um, that does seem like a symptomatic of a way that a lot of people are thinking, uh, but you would hope that that's not how your editor's thinking, or you would hope that even if she really felt that way, she could still see the capitalist value in, you know, uh, either appealing to Trump supporters or in showing, you know, how a good guy went bad by becoming a Trump supporter, if you believe that being a Trump supporter hmm. is inherently a bad thing to be. Um, so anyway, in December of 2017, um, she told me she was canceling the book. Um, and then like, that was obviously devastating to me. Um, I still, I still did believe in the material that I was putting together. So like, it was more like a short term devastation. Um, but long term, I still felt like I was doing, I had been doing the right thing by investigating all the stuff and that the final result would be good. It was just now going to be messy because I'd have to, you know, pay back this publisher and find a new publisher and all this stuff. And, uh, and then in the middle of that, um, like 10, uh, 11 days after that, my, my mother-in-law passed away. And I specifically remember that not just because it was, you know, a big, terrible milestone for my wife and for me as well. But I also just remembered that one of my first thoughts when that happened was that, um, you know, the, the one silver lining, as it were, is that at least, you know, I don't owe anything to my publisher. So I can just go with my wife to St. Louis where my mother-in-law lived, um, and just sort of you know, go get a one-way ticket and not have to worry about anything else. Um, and so we went out to St. Louis. We started taking care of her affairs. And then early in January, um, so like it was like two and a half or three weeks after the book had been canceled, um, <laughs> it was sort of this, uh, I, I don't know, Are you a, were you a Seinfeld fan? Yeah, 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 sure. Okay, so, you know, there's that, that famous uh, episode, which I guess is based on a real-life Larry David story at Saturday Night Live, where he quits on a Friday and then he just sort of comes back into the office on Monday, like nothing happened. Um, and then <laughs> early in January, I got a call from my agent saying, Oh, I just spoke with your editor and she wants to know when the book's being turned in. And I thought, well, what do you mean? I've just had a 
first I had a, um, what I thought was traumatic couple of weeks because the book was canceled. Then I had a truly traumatic experience when my mother-in-law passed away. Like the, the book's canceled where there's nothing due anymore. And he said, Oh, they still want the book. And, um, you know, I don't know what actually happened internally. If, um, you know, more senior officials at the company, um, overruled that decision. Um, but, but I do think that something else that was happening around that time was that whether or not, um, someone did believe that, uh, Palmer was a quote unquote bad guy for being a Trump supporter for whatever reason, um, that Facebook was making more and more of a better villain for the story because, uh, you know, stuff with information was coming out about, um, things that happened with the election the prior year. And, uh, I think I'm not sure if the Cambridge Analytica stuff had come out at that point, but, you know, I, I do remember that when we picked up the conversations again, <laughs> I also remember during one of the early conversations, I, I started off the phone call. I was talking to my editor from St. Louis and said, well, first of all, what's happening here? You know, you canceled the book a few weeks ago. Why are we having this conversation? And she said, you know, sort of very much like, a, you know, Bill Belichick on to Cincinnati sort of thing. She said, well, we're not here to talk about the past. Let's just talk about <laughs> if there's a way to move forward. And I was like, very angry, but I thought, you know what? I do want to move forward. So that's fine. We can just talk about how we could potentially move forward. Um, so yeah, so that happened. Um, and that, uh, that was, that was, it was devastating. I, I felt bad too. Um, you know, this is a, re- this is a book about real people. So I felt like they had been, you know, so many people had risked their jobs to get me information and, and been talking to me for so many hours in the past couple of years. I felt really bad having to say that the book was canceled and that, you know, to try to convince them, like, I still, you know, I'm still confident that we'll be able to find, uh, good home for this and that, you know, it's not like this book's going to just disappear, but it definitely made for what seemed like a, a very difficult, um, next, you know, next year, though, fortunately it did work out with, with Harper Collins and, um, they, they have been great to me overall. I think it was just a case of not getting along with that specific editor. Um, uh, but anyway, she didn't like it when I sent her that message, uh, last week reminding her that she had canceled the book. Um, she used some language that I won't use on the show, but anyway. Okay, so you mentioned that the book has gone up to number two. Uh, is that yes. because you appeared on Gwen Beck's show? Is that how that happened? Yeah, that was a really big part of it. Um, so I, as, as I've mentioned a few times during this conversation, I've, um, you know, the, okay, so the, so the book, I haven't mentioned this, the book's been out since February 19th, so about two months now. Um, there has been zero reviews of the book. Uh, like, I mean, on Amazon and Goodreads, there's, you know, user reviews, but there's been, um, whether it's Publishers Weekly or Booklist, whether it's, um, you know, Gizmodo, uh, or Wired or, um, you know, Business Insider, whatever, uh, places that covered console wars and gave reviews. Um, there's been zero reviews and, uh, the only people that I've really, the only people who I found have been willing to speak with me are usually from conservative outlets. Um, and so one of the people who wanted to interview me for the book was Glenn Beck. And I spoke with him, um, last week, uh, two different times. The first time, um, I, the first time I was just telling him the story of what happened. And I think that when, when I was booked on the show, I don't think he fully knew even about the Palmer Trump angle. I think he was just interested because he thought virtual reality was fascinating and it was an interesting, you know, rags to riches story. 
um, because he was kind of, he seemed to be shocked by what he was learning. Um, And then he really did implore his listeners to go out and and support the book um, and to support me. So See, um, this is why I always finish every book before I interview the author, because I'm always afraid something is going to give away that I didn't read the last hundred pages. Well, here's the thing, though. I, I, I wouldn't have let that happen because because there is a political aspect to this and because I know that most of my friends and probably most of the journalists I know um, also, like me, dislike Trump. Um, I, I've been like like I've had people like I've shared the first few chapters with certain people. And, and they're like, and they've said like, oh, this is really good. Can I tweet about it? And I've said, well, before you do, you should really read <laughs> the end of the book. Cause I don't want you to get in a situation where it looks like you're supporting a book, especially if it had to become that situation where I was being called a white supremacist for writing this, and then they would be somehow a white supremacist supporter or whatever. So, um, I think, I mean, you should definitely keep that policy and actually finish the books before you talk to people. But I also was very conscious of the fact that the ending of this book might change how people perceived it and I, I tried to be good about making that clear to people so that they didn't um end up supporting something that they found so offensive uh but yeah like i've um you know as glenn said several times during my interview with him um him and i probably agree on very little um which i don't you know which from what from what i do know about him does seem accurate <laughs> um but i do really appreciate him um, helping get the word out about my book and being so supportive. And, um, and, and he seemed to really admire the fact that, um, that I was not a Trump supporter and that I was, uh, that I still found the story important to get right. Um, and that seemed to be, um, like what he admired and, and why he felt inspired to ask his audience. And so, um, the book did shoot up to number two, which was crazy. Console Wars was never that high. Um, you know, the, that that happened on Wednesday of last week, and you know, first it shot up to 129. And by the way, it like started off at like 30,000, so it wasn't like the book had been selling all that great beforehand. Um, and then you know, I the, the best selling chart for Amazon came out the other day, and it was their 19th best selling nonfiction book of all of last week. Um, so that's that's pretty crazy, but I'm I'm really glad, and I, and I, um, you know, I, I've, I've also been really pleased with the the reactions of people um you know of course i want people to like the book that that, you know you want people to say that the thing you made was was good but but what they're actually saying i find inspiring because i have seemed to have people from different sides of the political spectrum agreeing that this is important and that this is not a issue of you know left and right but more an issue of right and wrong because of the whole facebook aspect of it all and because of zuckerberg's role and um. yeah, so it's been a very well, interesting past week. Well, and it occurs to me, I mean, if they ever make a TV show out of this and they need a hero who's not a Trump supporter, I mean, you could be the hero because this is like, you could be like the all the president's men of, uh, you know, t- the Silicon Valley or something because, you know, it is, you know, it's a fascinating story in the book. But then what you're telling, what you're describing as what happened to you is a fascinating story just in its own right. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, it's definitely been a really, I, I've, it's been a very interesting past couple of years for me. Um, I, I, uh, for people who are familiar with my background, like I, I mentioned earlier, I had been uh, a financial broker prior to writing console wars. So I, you know, I was not a trained journalist. I would say that, um, throughout writing console wars, even though there's a ton of information that took me three years to gather and report, like, 
I felt much more like a, a storyteller um, when writing that book. Whereas this time, I really did feel like the reporting aspect and the journalist aspect were so important to get across because of how I saw what happened. Because I saw what happens when that doesn't, when that isn't the case. Um, and and I still like for me the like I, I felt ill-equipped to deal with uh, a major corporation like Facebook lying to me. Um, but you know, you figure it out. So it's, um, it's been, um, I, I try not to write articles where I'm in them. I always want it to be about the people I'm writing about. So, um, I, I, I think that I could, um, you know, if there was ever going to be a movie or TV show, I'd prefer not to <laughs> be in it, be a character myself. Um, but that said, I, I, I made sure to document so much of my experience here, um, because I felt like it'd be helpful to other journalists, um, going forward. And, and like, I don't just mean, um, documenting the examples of Facebook lying to me or documenting, like, I wrote some long emails to Oculus employees to try to counteract what they were being told by Facebook about me in this book. Um, but I also, um, like, I think that to some degree, um, for, for you and I to do what we do for a living, um, there, some of it is just, you know, human fascination. Like we're, we're interested in people and stories and, and how things shape out. And so, um, you know, even detaching my own, uh, the, those reasons I think this is important, like the whole, the boy who cried wolf thing or just, um, getting the truth out there. I've just been also fascinated by the idea of what it takes to correct an incorrect story in the year of 2019. And so, I documented um, all of my approaches over the past couple of years, whether reaching out to editors in Engadget or at Wired or <laughs> wherever to try to get the story corrected because I just, I think it's interesting um, because I, I, I also, um, uh, one thing that I've, that I often find myself having very friendly arguments about is why the media seems to have this problem. Um, so the people that, uh, you know, I'm on the, I usually tend to be in the camp of that it's not malicious, that that um, that it's people who do think that they're doing a good job um, and are maybe just, you know, walking into blind spots. Or maybe, like you said earlier, they, they find Trump so awful that they're willing to compromise things they wouldn't have previously compromised. Whereas I do talk to people who think that it's ideological and they're trying to force their ideology on readers. Um, and so um, I, I wanted to make sure to document all of it and hopefully that'll be useful in whatever and I got to figure out the best way to get that out to people but but it um, you know it, like I, 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 I want my experience to be helpful to others and um, it really did feel like an intense past few years it wasn't like this was something I loosely worked on the side this time I was able to work full time on it and every day on it and uh, you know I saw a lot of things I didn't expect to see all I'm saying is Colin Farrell is Blake J. Harris. Just think about it. <laughs> Only if he gets to keep the accent, which obviously I don't have. But <laughs> I'll, I'll learn to adapt that accent into my daily life. I mean, I think with the media, I think it's less people, you know, consciously lying or, um, you know, not caring about the truth. It's just that people are in such a bubble and you can't even imagine some other perspective. And so you just sort of you know, repeat what you hear because it's the only thing that you hear and the only thing you can really think to it in a way. I agree. And that is usually the case that I make. I also, um, the, um, clearly the book, um, doesn't have the 
highest, uh, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of examples of bad journalism. So, uh, you know, my opinion of journalism is not the greatest, but at the same time, I, you know, I go on Twitter and I see a lot of people, um, you know, giving journalists a hard time and how they're such liars and how they deserve to lose their jobs and all that. And, um, I don't like that. I also think it's really weird that so many people are so angry at journalists who, <laughs> or I've never seen an example in history where, um, you know, the average person, uh, believes that someone who makes minimum wage and works way too many hours is the elite. Like that, like the, the journalists are referred to as like this elite exclusive club of gatekeepers. Um, when I know these people and while we might just like, you know, I, the, there might be uncertainty as to their motivation. I tend like you to think it's like the more charitable, this is just what happens and they're, they are trying their best way. Um, but either way, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I kind of feel like, um, if this was the movie, this is when we would like cut to the, the real, you know, titans of the world, the billionaires who are like, ha <laughs> they're getting mad at the wrong people. Um, but, um, well, let me, let me say that yeah. out of everything in the book, the, the part where it's like any reasonable person would think that this was an off the record conversation and then like they go ahead and print it is very hard for me to see any, you know, positive spin you could put on that. Oh, are you talking about the Daily Beast conversation? Yeah. Well, how, how Paul Merlucky's name is made. Yeah. Popular. So I'll, uh, I'll just briefly explain that readers because because most people probably did see the daily beast article that was probably the one or they saw an article that linked the daily beast article um which uh that was the one that claimed that palmer was funding this meme machine and um the way that that article came about was that um you know five days earlier the nimble america that organization had posted on the subreddit that donald that they were starting this organization to put up billboards and um they mentioned that they had a wealthy donor behind them um, who went by the alias nimble rich man and people on the Donald were skeptical that such a person really existed. So um, nimble America had someone affiliated with the Donald confirm that there was a wealthy donor. That person was Milo Yiannopoulos. Milo Yiannopoulos is uh, probably one of my least favorite people in the world. Uh, I did interview him for this book though. Um, and Milo had no involvement with this organization other than to just uh, confirmed that there was a wealthy donor. Um, but a few days after that, a reporter from the Daily Beast, uh, Gideon Resnick, he contacted Milo and uh, was looking into this story of what happened with Nimble America. Um, I, I would speculate the reason that he was doing so and that this was based on Milo suggested this to me, seems reasonable, that uh, a month or so prior, uh, Gideon had written an article about um, Milo Yiannopoulos's, uh, privilege grant, um, which was like, uh, you know, a college scholarship for, for white people or maybe white men. Um, and the article, the thrust of the article was that it was a scam. I have no idea whether it was a scam or not. Um, certainly I did not donate to that cause. <laughs> um, but, but, get, you know, Milo speculated that, um, that Daily Beast was looking to write another negative piece about him that was probably going to suggest that this was a scam. And part of that was that there was no wealthy donor behind it. Um, Milo said that there was, that his only role in this whole organization had just been to confirm that there was a wealthy donor. Um, Gideon wanted to speak with the wealthy donor to confirm that that, that what Milo was saying was true. Uh, Milo asked Palmer if he could introduce him to 
um, to Gideon. Palmer had reservations about being outed um, as 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 a Trump supporter in Silicon Valley, um, and then the way that they were able to move forward and and you know take or you know prove that there was a wealthy donor was uh, Milo had agreed with the journalist that he would introduce him to the wealthy donor, but that they that that name would not be revealed and that it would be an anonymous off the record conversation, um, and then that's what happened. And then obviously the Daily Beast did end up using Palmer's name. And, um, you know, the, I guess the reason that we're saying that now an hour plus into the call and not earlier, or the reason why I don't think that that's incredibly important, um, to the re, to the reader is because, you know, I often think, you know, I write everything I write with my grandmother in mind and figure, you know, I try to figure out how can I tell a, a high tech story for her. And I don't think my grandma should really care how the information was obtained. Um, you know, she should just care about what was true and what was not, not whether it was fruit from the forbidden tree. That said, as I'm a journalist and I absolutely care about breaking anonymity and the off the record considerations. So I find that staggering that they would do that. Um, and then, but at the same time, as I say that, as I find that staggering, um, you know, Gideon Resnick still has his job at the Daily Beast. There's been no negative consequences for him. I would say it's probably been positive consequences for him because he wrote a very popular, uh, highly engaged with story. So maybe I'm just naive to think that people wouldn't do that because there, there, there does seem to be no negative consequences for doing that. So if, if there's somebody listening to this and they, you know, despise Palmer Lucky and are suspicious of you and your book and your motives and all that, what would be the best argument that they would make that was based in reality that, you know, that they would be like shouting at your uh, shouting at their iPhone right now as they're listening? Well, it's a really good question because it's, it's one that I tried to keep in mind while I was writing to try to um, address those potential concerns if people had them. Um, well, the first thing I would say, because I've had people, also journalists that I still have friends with, um, kind of say those, shout those things to me in, in a friendly, friendly manner, you know, through like usually like Twitter DMs or emails. And they ask me, like, why are you going to bat for this guy? Why are you trying to, um, you know, make nimble America not seem like, um, that big of a deal? Or why, like, why is this cause so important to you? In the grand scheme of things, this seems like not really a big deal. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I've addressed earlier on why I think that this is a big deal, um, how I think that the accuracy and truth still matters. Um, and, and it also, you know, basically the opposite of that inaccuracy, uh, fuels things, things in politicians that I don't like and gives them ammo. But I also try to say to these like people, one I recently responded to the other day, like, like, I also would hope that they would ask, like, like, what am I getting out of this? Um, uh, there, the, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, you know, the book is being minimally covered. Um, I am basically tethering, um, the, the back of the book to defending someone who, who wired magazine literally called the worst. So, um, like, I don't, Think that there was I don't I, I don't know or understand how someone could think that I believe that there was like a strategic um, agenda based goal on my part that I thought well I've had a pretty good career to date let me align myself <laughs> with this person that everybody hates and try to show that he's not really as bad as you think or that he didn't do these things 
Um, like, I don't, uh, like, I kind of would ask that person shouting at their iPhone, like, like, what is the case? What would be the reason that I would choose to do that? Um, and, and why would you think that that is more likely than me actually just following the story um, and leading to this narrative as opposed to having a narrative and trying to figure out how to get get to get there? Because um, I, I would say, like, <laughs> my life would have been a lot easier, and I think that uh, my ability to sell future books probably would have been in greater standing if I um, had, if I had gone with Facebook's the, the narrative that they were telling me that Palmer chose to leave, that he was a bad guy, and all these things, like that would have been um, much easier. I would have been able to turn the book in much earlier, um, and because Palmer was so hated, it would have, um, you know, been maybe like catnip to people who already hate him and now have confirmation that he really is the worst. So. Um, I don't really know the, I think, I think maybe the fairest, I think, I think two, in terms of like, like what, why would someone be shouting at the phone and what I could say to them is, um, I think that probably number one, it is what you said earlier that Trump is like, you know, a black swan level, uh, threat to our country and that, um, it's okay for us to sort of, uh, round corners a little bit to make sure that that threat is stopped. Um, I obviously, um, agree to a large degree with the level of him being a threat or, or a concern, but I also don't think that, um, you know, round, you know, being, playing fast and loose with the truth is the way to, um, eradicate that. And maybe I'm wrong. Um, but that is, you know, perhaps that, that's a, a case that someone would have. The other case would be, um, and, and this would be, uh, probably a, a much more plausible, uh, reason to to uh, to be skeptical of of some of the stuff that's presented and that we've talked about is that um, that Nimble America really was a terrible organization and that yes they only put up one billboard but that was because they were stopped and and if they hadn't been stopped they would have put up a lot more billboards and they would have done terrible you know all these terrible memes and all this awful stuff um, and like I said I think that's a more plausible. Um, reason to be skeptical. Um, but in response to that, I would say two things. One is just a logistical one. One is that, um, when you are putting up billboards in the real world, you're, you're working with vendors and, and those vendors have like codes of conduct and also legal concerns. So, um, you know, if there, you know, if you imagined or, or recalled the worst meme that you've ever seen, let's say something like some sort of awful gas chamber, Holocaust sort of meme, um, you know, you're not actually going to be able to put that up. So that just wouldn't happen. <laughs> um, but and again, that's like more of a logistical, not just, just what would actually happen. But then the other thing too is that, um, I, I, I knew that so much, I, I, I've interviewed the founder of Nimble America for, you know, at least 20 hours by now because it was very important to me that I did not get deceived. Like, you know, th that would be a terrible mistake on my part if it really was a, a white supremacist or white nationalist or, you know, you know, an organization that was friendly to either of those awful ideologies. Um, so I wanted to make sure that, that what I was being told was true. And I spent a lot of time, um, delving through, like, you know, going through the posts that appeared 
um, every, you know, basically every aspect of Nimble America, as well as looking into the founders themselves. And I'll say that, um, <laughs> actually one of my, um, one of the scariest moments for me where my heart kind of stopped, uh, where I felt like I was being misled was when I was looking into the past of one of the founders of Nimble America. And I'm just pulling up the book here. What, I want to get the language exactly correct. Um, one moment. And so I mentioned in the book that the founder of Nimble America had also been a moderator of over 50 subreddits. And so I was going through the subreddits that he had uh, been the top mod for, the mod for, and one of the ones on there was Stormfront. And my heart sank because I thought, oh, my God, he really is a white supremacist um, and is involved in, in the and, and, you know, is involved in the worst stuff on the Internet. Uh, but then I clicked on this Stormfront Reddit, and it was uh, devoted to weather-related news and information. And it was because he wanted to hold that subreddit so that it couldn't be owned by the actual Stormfront uh, anti-Semitic publication. Um, I also, here's, here's a list of some of the other subreddits that he was the moderator of, in case you still think, like, oh, well, he's just, you know, saying it was for the lulls and doesn't really care about these things. Um, he was a moderator of Nazi hunting, which was devoted to sharing information about organized racists and um, making sure that they could be targeted and, and, and uh, like, shunned. Uh, he was also uh, he, the moderator of Alex Jones, the Alex Jones Reddit, which was devoted to exposing the vile lies of InfoWars Alex Jones and his modern-day anti-intellectual cult. And then he was also um, a moderator for Mitt Rodney's campaign. So, anyway, this guy is a, a big Trump supporter. He started this organization. I don't agree with a lot of his uh, policy objectives and some of his opinions on the direction of culture, but he really hates white supremacists, white nationalists. I know that one of the toughest jobs of running the Donald was getting rid of that kind of stuff. Um, so I would really just point out that, um, you know, th this whole guilt by association thing is, 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 is not a really good way to, um, judiciate people in our digital landscape. But even if you are going to do it, like, like you should make, like, make sure that people are actually guilty of the things that you're guilty of. Because, um, you know, I would guess that the reason I'm a problematic person is because Palmer's a problematic person and Palmer's a problematic person for associating with this guy, but I don't even understand what it would be about this guy to be problematic. And it's not him. It's that he's associated with supposedly other people. So, um, yeah. Are there any specific concerns that you could think of that I could address here to try to, um, help explain why I don't think they're valid? No, no. I mean, I just, you know, all I know, as I said, all I know about the situation is reading your book. So I'm just curious if there is, you know, if, if after this interview goes up, if there's things that people are going to come forward with and say, like, oh, well, what about this or what about that? But I, I mean, I, I feel like you've addressed it pretty well. Well, I would also say that um, that if someone does do that, you know, if someone goes back to the Wayback Machine or, or you know, and like looks into Nimble America or looks into things that Palmer said and did or looks into articles and, and has concerns about places where um, it doesn't seem to align with what's in my book, then I, you know, encourage you to bring them to me. Uh, perhaps I missed something that seems unlikely because I knew that my reputation was on the line. But, but either way, you know, I'd be happy to, um, explain, um, you know, like how that fits into this and, 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 um, you know, have a, have a dialogue about it, which does feel in contrast to me with my experiences of reaching out to the authors of the original story, um, 
and, and some of the other ones that covered it, you know, that that's to me again, like that's where the biggest problem is. It's not so much that they made a mistake. Um, I do think that is a problem, but the biggest problem to me is that they're unwilling to correct or address or even engage with the possibility that they might've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Let me just say, I mean, earlier you said that um, Wired called Palmer the worst person or something. Um, I don't really, I don't know what any of the details behind that. I wasn't involved with that, but I just want to explain for people, like, again, about just how the media works. Like I've had the experience so many times where I'll write something and then an editor will kind of like rewrite it a little bit. And then like someone will rewrite the headline and then some social media person will come along and paraphrase the headline or something. And and then people will say like, oh, Wired says this. Right. And not only does it not represent like the editorial board of Wired or something like that, it doesn't even represent what any particular person thought. You know, it's sort of like right. this weird, you know, jumble of different people, you know, tweaking things and who even knows what anyone, you know, it's, it's like Wired isn't a person. It's like a huge organization, you know. No, that's an important point. And actually... There's, there's two things I think are that stem from that that are especially important. Um, one is that um, uh, I think every media organization or, or most media organizations are bigger than one person. And so, um, you know, when Wired said Palmer Lucky's the worst, um, I, like, like you should say, wow, why, you know, Wired's willing to publish that. But, but then to assume that people at Wired or that Wired is like this entity that thinks Palmer's the worst. Is, is kind of crazy. You know, it's a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions. Um, so I, I wouldn't, and, and my personal situation with that was like when I published that, that list of, of the tweets and the article headlines for, for Venture Beat and for Upload VR, I saw a lot of people saying like, oh wow, Upload VR is a Palmer apologist or they're, you know, like they're, they're, they're Palmer fanboys. Um, I would disagree with both those categorizations, but they should really be saying, Blake Harris is that because I wrote that article yeah, yeah. for free. They <laughs> published it. It wasn't like they were like in the editorial room and they're like, Hey, we got to get someone to really, you know, write this Palmer article. So, um, that is, is the case. Um, um you know, th- I just remember that, that, you know, organizations are organizations, they're collections of people and it doesn't speak for everyone at the, at the group. And I think one of the problems that lead to the situation we're in is generalizations when they're really referring to specific examples. Um, and then the other thing too, which you describe as almost commonplace, I do think that the biggest problem or, or one of the biggest problems with the media that seems the most addressable is the disconnect between the headline of an article and what the article is actually about. And you're describing it as, um, you know, in your case, you were describing sometimes where it's just not accurate. Um, or, you know, that someone's picking up a story or quoting things that aren't true. But, but I think there's a chance that that the Daily Beast article um, that we've referred to several times here, that the authors of that article didn't even write the headline. But to your point, what you read as a consumer of information was pretty much just the headline and maybe the first couple of paragraphs. So how can we have a situation where the people who are writing what is actually consumed are not the same people who are writing the article and that those things don't really have to align? And I see that happen a lot where the writer, you know, I'll contact the writer and say, you know, your article seems off. And they're like, well, that's really mostly the headline. I didn't write the headline. And then I'll talk to the person who wrote the headline and they say, <laughs> yeah, well, the headline's a little bit off, but if you read the article, you'll see what it's all about. And that is just like an ultimate case of diffusion of responsibility and and a situation that does seem like, you know, actually addressable. There's so much about the media that is hard to address and to fix because it's a lot of exceptions and it's a lot, it's a very complicated machine with 
millions or you know thousands of different people with thousands of different interests. But but getting alignment between the headline of an article and the body of an article seems like a reasonable place to begin. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But let me just say, I mean, even if you fixed all the problems with the media in this Palmer Lucky situation, they they still would have they still very well could have published a, a completely accurate article saying Palmer Lucky is supporting is voting for Donald Trump and giving money to help him win. Yep. And I feel like just that very likely could have made Palmer so toxic within Facebook. You know, people would be threatening to quit and vendors would be refusing to work with them and consumers would be boycotting their products and stuff that at a certain point, it's, um, you know, a completely rational, you know, business decision for the company to want to get rid of this person. Yes. Um, how, like, what are you supposed to do about that? Like, if it's if it's all true, you know. Um, that is like the great hypothetical that I often wonder about. And I'm really sad that we'll never get to know because I, th I think that I think you're spot on. I think there's a pretty solid 50, 50, at least chance that if everything was reported accurately, if the breaking story was that Palmer is if the Palmer, if the story is basically Palmer seems to be a Trump supporter, um, that that still could have resulted in, um, him losing his job. And then I think that that is, um, still, I think, I mean, first of all, that's good because then at least that's a, a, an interesting conversation, a fair conversation to have of whether people's in professional employment should be, um, should, whether their personal politics should have a bearing on professional involvement and then whether, you know, donating goes beyond personal politics into more of a public realm. And then also let's, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge that this was sort of a unique case because Palmer was the spokesman. He was on the cover of Time. He was the face of Oculus. He wasn't just a random executive at the company. Um, then, so I think that's a really interesting um, conversation. I think that's the kind of conversation we should actually be having as opposed to what, what did end up happening. Um, then, you know, then you have to talk about the, the, the law in California. Um, you know, as I understand it, in New York, you can fire someone for being a Trump supporter or for being a Clinton supporter. That's not you know, your political views are not a protected class here in New York, whereas in California, it's different. So um, that makes things a little bit different. Um, and then I guess, um, you know, the, uh, the there, there's two other really important components to me. One is, uh, like you're saying, it, the situation could have been so toxic at Facebook, regardless that people didn't trust working with the Trump supporter or, um, you know, being in that sort of environment. And, and developers and vendors might have boycotted, um, Oculus. Um, that all is possible. I have to believe, and this is mostly based on people at Facebook and Oculus who were in that camp, that after they read my book and actually understood what happened, they were much more rational. And, you know, of course they could just be saying that to me, or of course it's been two years. So maybe cooler heads prevailed. Um, but regardless, I do feel like if you actually present the information, people, um, can reach a rational conclusion. They also then at some point have to reconcile the fact that, that half the country voted for and supports this guy. So, and, and, and we should say like probably half of their users in the U S like, so how are those users going to react to the situation? Um, and then two, like getting to what you're saying about there could be valid business reasons if developers uh, were boycotting Oculus or users were boycotting Oculus or, or anything like that. Um, and, and the first thing that comes to mind is, is there were some articles about developers boycotting Oculus and, um, none of the, the, it was the developers that 
that threatened to boycott Oculus, um, like Scruda Games, they had never made a game before. Um, and they, I think, I'm not even sure if they ended up releasing their game. So, um, I do think that from, if you're, if you're looking at this from a purely business perspective, you probably have to say, um, that that's not a really big concern to your bottom line. It wasn't like, um, you know, electronic arts or Blizzard were, were threatening these sorts of things. And then I would also want to give credit to Screw the Games because Screw the Games was the, I believe they were the first developer to say that they were not going to, um, continue developing for Oculus unless Palmer was fired. And then, they are the only person in this whole story that actually acknowledges that, that the, what was reported was wrong. You know, I believe one week after they made those tweets, um, and their tweets are included in the book where they say that they realized that all that this organization was, was that they put up a billboard and that the media had misreported what happened. So if you have the people who are actually boycotting it coming to believe that, oh no, we would actually are not boycotting it because we were misled, that seems, um, pretty significant to me. Um, yeah, so I, I think that in a nutshell, the Palmer's firing is complicated. You know, um, it, 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 there was, there was a lot of components to this. Um, but I also think that when looking at why he was fired and trying to consider that other possible reason that it was from a business sense, um, you know, the two things that I always consider is, okay, but what if he was, um, a Clinton supporter or a Bernie Sanders supporter? And articles like this had come out. And imagine if maybe conservative media was saying, oh, this guy is a, tr- a troll running a troll factory for Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. That would be negative backlash, too. And I, I, I'm hard pressed to believe that Facebook would have um, handled it the same way. And then um, lastly, I'll just say, you know, using <laughs> using another Seinfeld example, um, you know, one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld is when Jerry um, buys a suit. And then he tries to return the suit and they ask, what's the reason for returning the suit? And he says, spite. And then they tell him, no, that's not an acceptable reason. And then he comes up with a different reason. Like, uh, no, he just doesn't like it. And they said, no, sorry, sir. You've already said spite. Um, well, you know, the fact that Mark ended up writing Palmer's statement and, and, and forcing him to lie to say that he was supporting Gary Johnson. And during that time period, Palmer was asked to tender his resignation, um, before that was pulled back for, I can only speculate that it was for, because that was illegal. Um, when you fire him six months later, I do think of that whole Seinfeld thing where it's like, you know, if, if your reasoning is, oh, there's no longer, quote, a role for him, you know, you've already told us the reason was spite. You already told us the reason was because the politics here. So you kind of can't come up with a second reason. Um, especially when I had my own personal experiences with Facebook where they just would constantly throw out reasons to me until I disproved them. Um, you know, uh, it's hard to trust their their logic and reasoning there. I mean, you can tell me what you think of this idea, but one thing I, I've wondered in a lot of these situations is if companies need some sort of blanket policy that they do not make personnel decisions in the face of public outrage. You know, that um, if, if there's public outrage about an employee, they say, we're going to put this, we're going to review this but we're, you know, are just our, our, our company policies, policy is we don't fire people, you know, as, as long as there's sort of public pressure. And at least that would give time for the facts to come out. And I think in, in so many of these cases, you know, 
like when the news breaks, there's just thousands and thousands of right. people posting on Twitter and they're furious and it seems like the end of the world. And then a week later, nobody cares. And everything, the reaction, it seems like an overreaction, everything you, that you did. I think that's really interesting. And, and unsurprisingly, I'd be pretty supportive of such a, uh, you know, a, a, a clause in your company code of conduct. I would also suggest, I would also say like, but why do you need that? Like, like to your point, you see a lot of situations where there's public outrage. The company is trying to um, address or appease that outrage and they make a decision. And then, like you said, like a week later, nobody cares. And it makes you wonder why did the company make that decision in the first place? You know, why did um, Disney fire James Gunn for tweets that he made several years ago that he had talked about in the past? You know, like basically he was, James Gunn to me seems like the model of the kind of uh, behavior that we want to encourage where he said some things that either were jokes or either represented true negative feelings. Then over the past 10 years, he changed and, and condemned his previous behavior and then made a, a couple of great movies and then was fired for, for, for the, from the third one because of things he had said 10 years ago that he'd already acknowledged that he'd already changed from. Um, and like who, who was Disney actually appeasing? Um, and then I would also say that um, you know, I, I do occasionally, um, search Twitter for, to see what people are talking, saying about Palmer Lucky. And I, and I often see people on Twitter. So whatever, caveat that with small sample size, you know, people on Twitter, whatever. But I see people saying not to buy Oculus products because <laughs> their founder was Palmer Lucky. And I don't understand that because didn't Oculus do what they wanted and fired him? So shouldn't they say, oh, you should support this company because they get rid of the kinds of people that we don't like. Um, so that seems, I, I don't know. It does seem like a, a can't win situation. Um, but I don't understand why companies in general, uh, you know, uh, react so quickly to that public outrage. Um, I mean, I guess I, I should say that I, I, I'm a, I'm a person. I understand what it's like to be swept up in hysteria. Even for me last week, the book climbing to number two, like, I just felt like, like stuff's happening. This is crazy. And like, I don't know. Um, there's, there's a lot of momentum in these cases. So I I can understand like on a human level, you just want to stop the people being angry at you. But, you know, again, like we said for, for Wired and these, uh, these other outlets, they're entities. They're not individuals. Like they they sort of should act like, like, you know, um, shouldn't they be acting like faceless corporations? Um, Well, well, let me, sorry, let me, let me just jump in because I think the psychology of that is really interesting because it's sort of inexplicable. Why would you, you know, land-based Oculus when they already fired Palmer Lucky? But I think it's because by and large, these people don't care at all about affecting meaningful exactly. change in the real world. They care about getting likes from their followers and they accomplish that by this sort of posturing regardless of whether it has any sort of rational underlying meaning to it. And I'm I'm 100% convinced that in most of these cases, if the person had to make a choice between affecting real change in the world anonymously or getting credit socially for something that is not going to make any difference, they would pick option B virtually every time. I I mean, no shock. I agree with you. I also (laughs) think like the James Gunn case to me is a really great example because I don't think any of the people that were upset about it or claimed to be upset about it we're not going to see the movie that would have already seen the movie. So it actually has zero, uh, you know, if that were true, that would have zero bearing on the bottom line and present no reason for Disney to make that decision. And perhaps that's what they came to believe because they did hire him back. Um, the other point I would want to make is that 
regardless of company policy um, in, in how these companies do react and handle public outrage and public accusations. Um, in the, one of the most compelling things to me in the case of Palmer Lucky is that Facebook did conduct an internal investigation in November of 2016. So like about two months after what happened, they concluded that he had done nothing wrong. So, um, like they, they did do that and, and then they still ended up firing him. Um, and they also didn't end up telling their employees that he was found to have done nothing wrong. <laughs> um, so, uh, like, I, I, I always, um, would encourage companies and people to try to do their due diligence, um, especially companies because that's their responsibility. People, not so much. Um, but like in this case, it, what made the story even crazier is that they did do the due diligence. They found that Palmer had done nothing wrong. He had not contributed to any hateful group. He hadn't, um, gone, you know, like, like I look, like one of the lies that I was told by Facebook people is like, Oh yeah, well, you know, the organization was fine. But Palmer went rogue and talked to a journalist. He wasn't supposed to do that. Um, well, your, your internal investigation that lasted two months found that not to be true. <laughs> um, and then, and then the last point, this is kind of, uh, not, not so much related to this, but, but one that I just think is important and interesting to make while we're having this conversation is that, um, Another one of the things that people seem to react negatively to was that Palmer um, donated this money anonymously um, under this, this pseudonym moniker Nimble Richman. And now, again, there was a post by Nimble Richman that, um, for all intents and purposes, Palmer wrote or approved. You know, that, that's kind of described in the book. But, but let's say we should definitely um, consider it that Palmer did write that. And if you think that that post was immature, I'm with you. I think that was immature. I think it was stupid. Um, that that's a good conversation to have. But regardless, people do object to the fact. Why did he do it anonymously? You know, if he if there was nothing wrong with being a Trump supporter, then why would he have to hide? And that's an interesting question because, um, you know, something I have thought about um, and that I would like to try to address in 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 a later edition of the book is that um, back in April of 2016, so five months before this. Um, Palmer had appeared at a, uh, a Trump rally in, in Costa Mesa, and there was, a, there was an incident outside of the rally with protesters, and Palmer ended up being filmed for, I think it was for NBC, but he was on television news at a Trump rally, um, and clearly had no problem with being, you know, identified as a Trump supporter. And then five months later, he was now doing it anonymously. Like, what had changed in between those five months? And what had changed was that in between that time, uh, Peter Thiel, who's a Facebook board member and, you know, famous for being the first institutional investor in Facebook, was that Peter Thiel was, quote unquote, outed as a Trump supporter, um, you know, when he spoke at the Republican National Convention. And, and the reaction on Facebook campus was to try and get Peter fired from the board of directors. And it wasn't just amongst employees, but Reed Hastings, um, who's the CEO of Netflix and also a Facebook board member, he wrote, um, Peter, um, he, he tried to get Peter kicked off of the board and, you know, that wasn't publicly known. So, you know, Palmer couldn't have known that, but, but it's just interesting to note that even Facebook board members, you know, I, I, I don't, there's a good, there's a good New York times article by Nick Wingfield that actually reveals the exact wording of what Reed Hastings said to Peter. So, um, what I, I'm going to paraphrase it here and say that, that he believed that Peter's support of Donald Trump demonstrated such bad judgment that he shouldn't be on the Facebook board. But again, you know, I encourage you to look up the actual text because I'm just, 
quoting off the top of my head. Um, so that, that is a big part of what changed between, um, Palmer willing to say that he was a Trump supporter publicly and him not willing to do so. And then the other thing too was, um, just internally, you know, Facebook was a company where executives in the lead up to the election had no problem sharing articles that said things like, there's no such thing as a good Trump supporter. Um, which is kind of uh, weird because like, do they not think that there's any Trump supporters at Facebook? I've, I've talked to plenty and they all sort of learned to not be open about it because of things like that. Um, you know, to say if that executive had shared an article saying Trump is a terrible candidate, that's one thing. Cause that's like your opinion of a politician, which I would always encourage people to feel free to share, but to say people who support him who do so for tons of different reasons um, are just terrible people. That's kind of crazy when you have employees who almost definitely um, some of them are supporters. Right. So we're, uh, I, I could easily talk about this for another two hours, but um, you <laughs> Me know, too. I, know you to, I know you have to go, but so um, you, you, you said that you were afraid at one point that this uh, was going to ruin your career. Uh, I'm just curious, do you feel like you're out of the woods now or do you still have some of that apprehension? Mm, that's a really good question because it's something I haven't really uh, – I've, I've tried not to think about over the past few months because it seems irrelevant to me trying to uh, you know, get the word out about the book. Um, uh, I don't know. I've, 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 I think part of the answer to that still gets to why uh, so few media outlets have seen any reason to cover the book or to talk about what's in the book. Um, I have to imagine that having written – two tech books, it would be very hard for me to get access at a tech company um, nowadays, you know, to work with them. But that's also not just because of the politics aspect. That's because, um, you know, I'm sure Facebook regrets working with me because I found stuff they didn't want me to find and then I reported it. Um, uh, so um, I guess the real answer to your question is, I don't know, but it was very intentional that I decided the next book I was going to write was going to have nothing to do with tech and that I... Um, you know, I'm writing a book about the first three Americans who opened a hotel in Tahiti back in the 1960s. And I, um, have been interviewing those guys, the surviving members of that for the past few years. So, um, uh, it definitely helped me that I knew that I'd be landing on a separate book, um, that would have nothing to do with a lot of these challenges. But at the same time, I still have to sell that book to a publisher and I have no idea what to expect there. Um, you know, I, I, I try to focus on the things that I have control over. Um, but, but it will be, I guess it'll be interesting. And especially for people who are not me, it'd probably be even more interesting though. Then again, why would you <laughs> care about me? So maybe not, but, uh, but it'll be interesting. We'll see. Well, I mean, it's a terrific book. I mean, I, I, you know, it's 500 pages and I just went right through it and it's, it's sort of like an amazing, the first 400 pages are like an amazing fairy tale romance story, and then Facebook acquires Oculus, and it kind of turns into a, a, a slasher horror movie. Uh, it takes a big sort of genre <laughs> yeah. twist at that part. But uh, yeah, so people, if you're interested in how to build a business, there's so much good stuff in here about startups and entrepreneurship, and then yeah, then it comes in with all this the political stuff and the media and everything. So there's just a lot in this book, and. I'm just really glad that you wrote it, and you know, I know it wasn't always fun, but I, I you know, respect that you, uh, you know, sort of stuck to your guns and told the truth as you see it. Thank you, and I really appreciate you having me on, and especially you know, spending nearly two hours talking about it. A lot of the conversations that we've had are you know things that have just existed in my head um, that I 
one, wanted to get out, and this was, you know, I haven't really talked about this with anybody, so that's great. And two, they were in my head, so I wasn't, you know, actually having to defend some of these thoughts or to hear other perspectives. So I really appreciate you having such a, you know, an honest, thoughtful conversation and, and you know, giving me the opportunity to talk about this book, because I do, again, think it's a really important story. And whether you're a liberal um, or a conservative, whether you think Palmer Lucky is awesome or you think he's the worst, I still think you're going to find this book uh, eye-opening and revealing and, and helpful to better understanding our digital landscape and um, the kind of company that Facebook is. Absolutely. All right. So we've been speaking with Blake J. Harris about his new book, The History of the Future. So, Blake, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Blake J. Harris for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Jonathan Giloni, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So, big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.